Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by T. Michael, a bespoke tailor, designer and artist with a conceptual approach to men's tailoring inspired by his love of sartorial traditions and his passionate quest for a different narrative within tailoring, design and creativity that celebrates stylistic and cultural diversities present in today's zeitgeist. He's known for his meticulous attention to detail and for his garment's impeccable construction. Check out all his work, the tea kimono, Norwegian rain, and his eponymous label, T. Michael. T. Michael, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So I want to start, as I always do, by asking what it is you do. I mean, you're in a slightly unusual position because you have um, two very exciting um, jobs. I, I am based in Bergen, and um, I train as a tailor. I'm a designer. Uh, I suppose I I, um, I run two brands. Uh, one is T. Michael, uh, which is based on what I design clothing. And number two is Norwegian Rain, which I do together with Alexander Heller. And it's practically based on um, the life. We live in Bergen, which is the rainy city of the city of Europe, really. Um, and combined with uh, Japanese sensibility, we try to create the best raincoats ever. Something that does not um, compromise on style and function. Tell me how you got to Bergen, because um, you're obviously a long way from home. Yeah, my, my um, I was born in Ghana. I used to live in London, and that's where I met my, my ex-wife, who happened to be Norwegian. Um, and then, obviously, fell in love and followed her, or she clapped me down and dragged me to Norway. I don't know which way, which way sounds best. But yeah, I ended up in, in Bergen, Norway, many, many years ago. I think it was 33 years ago. And, you know, just, just loved the space. It was a smaller city to live in. It was quaint. It's, um, it was good because at that part of my life, we were very sort of uh, into building a family together. Um, but then it, 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 after a few years, it just hit me. It rains a lot here, you know. Um, obviously, I stayed. Uh, but that's, that's how I got there. Ever since, it's been my, my sanctuary in a way. I like traveling around, but it's always good to get back to, to Bergen because there's a certain uh, quietness and something grounded about it and it gives you time to reflect. How long have you been a tailor? Um, I opened up my first studio in 1996. Um, and actually, I opened it on my second birthday. My Sorry, my 30th birthday on the 2nd of July. Um, and it was one of those things where I was looking forward to. I trained four years in Norway to, to get to that point. Um, while I was training, obviously, I had quite a few um, customers as well, uh, or clients, and, and it just built up from there. Um, what, what was fascinating for me about tailoring was the fact that you could build the clothes right from scratch. You could, you know, you see a customer, you take the measurements, you draft a pattern, you cut, you base it together. And, and for me, that is the beauty of clothing. It wasn't about necessarily designing something out of the ordinary, it was just building something that was solid based on the customer's uh, sizes and shape but then you you hide all that things you don't want to see and make them look good i read somewhere that you're inspired by sartorial style and of course sator comes from the latin which means tailor correct how do you define sartorial style you know the thing the thing about clothing is we as, you know as much as we like to change things we end up practically creating the same things all over again and again and again because we are comfortable with the kind of clothing that we we wear these days. You know, it's all based on traditions. Um, so, in a way, for me, it's about finding that traditional route and then try to stray away from it for a while. It's important for people to have that reference point for it for for them to be able to be comfortable with whatever piece you you create. But it's nice to depart a little bit from it and 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 bring in something unusual something that underlines um, the quality of the cloth, um, the cut of the silhouette, and so on and so forth. So 
for me that that is 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 that thing the satural um and obviously style is something that you cannot push on anyone you have to acquire that yourself so i will help you um help yourself to find that style and do you physically make the stuff yourself so if you've got a client who's yeah. um, comes to you for a suit do you cut and I, yeah i did i did before i mean when i started out it was just me in my little tiny studio of about maybe 35 square meters and i did practically everything for about six seven eight years you know um i don't actually miss that bit of the job now but i miss you know going to the studio and and creating new patterns patterns sometime because that is the basis of any clothing it doesn't matter how um, how elaborate your design is you need to have a good pattern cut out to get make it work and i still love to do that i keep saying you know creativity has no uh, boundaries, you know, so you could be anywhere and, and create anything. I worked very closely with the customers systematically, and then it was all built this thing. And then, you know, they'll bring one extra customer afterwards, bring the friend, and then it just grows in a very organic way. You, you get quite close to these people, and they, they get close to you, and you, you it, it takes a short time for people to, to recognize who you are. Um, but at the same time, what is good about being in, in, in Bergen is the fact that you're so far away from the source or where fashion or tailoring is done that your ideas tend to be yours really you know that you're not you're not sort of uh, infused or you're not led by the things you see around you because there's not much of it so eventually over time you develop your own style based on on what you find uh, exciting fascinating so it, it, it really it's up to you how far you can push it or how little you push it. So, I've read a bit about you and you're often referred to as um, the luxury menswear tailor. Yeah, you know, people like to make up the assumptions and all that. And I like, I like the fact that they say that, but I think I look at lux luxury as something else than what they probably do. You know, for me, luxury is not about buying things that are ostentatious or, or spending a lot of money on things. Luxury is about curating um, um, a certain life around yourself um, and that that practically comes from okay i want to have that suit made for me so i can have it for many years to come so i'll invest that money and then it goes on from there you know it's not about wasting money or spending too much money it's about spending wisely to get the right outfit yeah tell me just explain a little bit more about this curated um curated uh, lifestyle yeah i i suppose if I'll use myself as an example. Obviously, we all started out um, going to stores to, to, to just buy things for yourself because either it, it, you want to look fresh for the weekend or you want to impress someone or you like a brand. or It goes on. There's so many different um, reasons why we do that. But over time, it, it, you find exactly what you want to be um, and that is a reflection of your mind. And the moment you've got that, space in your mind where you're comfortable with you start finding things to match that state of mind i suppose and that's where i believe the luxury comes in you know you don't need to buy 20 pairs of shirts just because you can but you can get a tailor to make you three shirts if that's what you want uh four pairs of trousers if that's what you need you don't need 20 of them you cut it right and you get it right you have it for, for many years to come you know so is that kind of life is that kind of luxury, that kind of creation, because you are the center of that world. So it should revolve around you, not around other people's tastes. And and you shouldn't be dictated by other people's brands either. So Yeah. I mean that's uh, that that's um, an interesting and refreshing point of view. So how would you then communicate luxury? I mean, do you think of what you do? as being luxurious and you think of the products you produce as being luxury products yes and no um, yes as in because of the effort i put into finding the cloth therefore i put into into getting the cut right um the manufacturing the finishing i believe is a luxury product but then it's not luxury in the sense that it's it's ostentatious it's just this is what you need and the price is determined by the effort you put into it and the markup is reasonable enough um, to, to, to make it land in a space where probably not everyone can afford it, but it's not expensive. It's, um, 
It costs a bit of money, but it's not expensive. That is luxury uh, for me. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How people, um, you know, just generally people are consumed by this idea of luxury um, and that, you know, the more you have, you know, the better it is or the more you mm. spend on something, the better it is, which is, I mean, what you're saying is, you know, far from the truth. Mm. It's, it's you, know, you know, I suppose luxury for other people has been frivolous. Uh, I think luxury in itself, based on what tailoring used to be, is the most sustainable way to, to, to live a life, you know. You curate, you, you order or commission the things that you want because that's exactly what you need. The rest of it, it's really not yours. Someone else can look at it. Yeah. It's interesting, and I, I use this example uh, time and time again. Is you know I had a conversation with Olga Belluti, and she said to me, the best pair of shoes is not the new pair of shoes. It's the pair of shoes that was handed down from your father and that you've repaired um, because new pairs of shoes are very uncomfortable. <laughs> well, they'll, they'll pinch a little bit until you break into it, you know. So yeah. I understand a point of view. Um, and again, you know, the, the, if you buy the right pairs of shoes, they will be with you for a long time and they would, they would fit beautifully every time you put them on. Um, and they'll last you for a long time. And it just gets better, but you fall in love with them because you've had them for a longer period, you know? Um, and I think that's one of the most important things I like to infuse in the two brands that, that I work on because they are things that you wouldn't notice the first time you buy the coat, the suit, the jacket, the trousers, or whatever. But over time, you discover all these small little details on them. You, you realize that the cloth is actually beautiful because it's not going to uh, fray. It wouldn't. You know, so based on all of this stuff, you fall in love with the product and then it becomes your, your companion forever. You know, that, that is luxury. Yeah, I like that, that your companion forever. I mean, that's a great way of expressing something that has value and meaning. That's correct. Tell us about the, your, the, the two strands of your work. So you've got T. Michael as in a tailoring business. And um, within that, you produce a collection of, of, um, of clothing and you've got knitwear and um, you've got the T. Michael kimono and then you've got Norwegian Rain. They're very different, aren't they? They're very, very different. Um, but then, you know, Norwegian Rain is, is based on, um, based on the, the tailoring part of, of T. Michael per se because when we started this project, the idea was to create um, a raincoat the same way you will um, buy a coat. So we had to make sure it had all the tailoring details, the subtle thing about it, cut right. And then we needed to find the best fabric on the market that was 100% waterproof, was breathable, because if it's waterproof and it's not breathable, there's no point really. It's, it's like work done zero. So you had to have both. Uh, and then when we put it all together, we, 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 we had this thing that we call the Japanese sensibility. It's where you do away with all the things that are not needed, and then you go deeper into the things that make sense to, to, to give your coat the best possible, um, to give your coat the, that extra thing needed to make it be the best functional product. Uh, visually, it should be appeal appealing as well. So that's, that's what we did. Um, we found a Japanese company that did the best of cloths. Um, and we didn't practically go to Japan just to find it. We tested most of the, of, of the cloths in the market or the fabrics in the market. And we, we ended up with one from Japan and one from Switzerland. And we made two coats out of them. We did a test on it and the Japanese one came superior. So we stuck with them. When, when we started out first, it was very important for us to to find also to find the most sustainable cloth in the market. Um, so we were asking questions that practically no one was asking at that time. Um, because one of the, the, the things we said to ourselves is we'll create the best raincoat without any negative footprints. And, and that's what we set out. Um, so at given times, we would, we would speak to the factory, we we'll ask them, you know, is there anything we can do to make our product more eco-friendly, what can we do? You know, we had re um, organic uh, cottons to start with. We do recycled polyesters, um, setting bad uh, chemicals we drop. So we kept pushing the limit, and we still push the limit, both in, in, in terms of 
the, the, the eco-friendly part of it, but also on, on you talked about the texture, the cloth, the weave. Uh, we do that too because um, we, we want the best product all around. So it should look good. It should be reflective of our ambitions as well. So we, we, we do that at, at regular intervals, yes. And we've been with them for 16 years now. So Tell me about this. Uh, tell me about the Japanese influence, because um, I know that you travel to Japan a lot and, and you've obviously got the team Michael Kimono. Mm. How did that come about? Um, that's, that's a good one. I mean, I've always been fascinated about Japanese style from very early, you know, like Yoki Yamamoto's and, and all the beautiful Japanese designers that one couldn't afford in those days, you know, so you just looked up to them and you checked what they do, what they did. And, and it's always inspiring because in the most simple, simplest way, they created something that was so advanced, you know. Um, so that stayed with me. And when I started working with Alex, he had this, um, he had this thing for Japan as well. So we just sort of um, soaked in all the things that we thought was Japanese or Japanese sensibility. Um, and then, obviously, we went there, uh, and that was later on in the, in the collection. And we sold one of our raincoats to this amazing store that had just opened up, and they sold kimonos. So this store was coming out of this bigger company called Yamato, and Yamato's been in business for since 1916. And, and, and Wine Sons... It's, it's a newer version where they would, you know, sell kimonos to younger professionals with with a modern uh, touch to it. Nothing's changed in the in, in the kimonos per se, but just the um, accessories that goes with it. The right, the different kind of shoe, a different kind of bag, different kind of belt. Uh, so they bought our raincoat because it was the only raincoat in the market that actually works of a kimono because it had wider sleeves. Right, so that's where the, the relationship started from. So most people thought we, we, we actually designed the, the raincoat after I started working on the kimonos, but it's, it was the other way around. The raincoats was made uh, and then they bought it because it was the right raincoat for their kimonos. And then I got to meet um, the, the, the president of uh, Yamato, a fantastic gentleman. He's got this beautiful style, always kimonos, um, always in bow ties, with a hat, and uh, Cuban Hill shoes. Amazing style. Um, so I got to meet him, and uh, he introduced me to his son. And they, I think there's two two seasons after that, we went for dinner, and they asked me if I wanted to design a new form of kimonos for them. And that was obviously something that I had to think about it a little bit, um, I gave it some time, thought about it, and I thought it was fantastic because that um, it was something that came from the hearts and I appreciated it and, and my uh, my take on that kimono also came from my heart. I just, it wasn't important to change much about it. It wasn't important to create anything new. It was just important to get people to understand that a kimono could also be a, a, a staple in a men's wardrobe, just like your cardigan or jeans or a white shirt. So we just had to change the cloth and just reintroduce it and that's really interesting because i wonder how many other i mean i'm going to call you a foreigner because you're not mm. japanese obviously wonder, that's correct <laughs> um how many other foreigners have um had that opportunity to go and work on something that's you know so traditional and iconic with you know such heritage and so essentially japanese I, I I don't know, but um, I, I I can imagine there's not many. But but I appreciate it, um, the respect and the admiration they had for my work, and it was vice versa. I mean, what they were doing at that time was just beautiful. I mean, and then when you look back into history, what they've done as well that they've maintained it. They had about 140 stores, and it was just this this impressive history. And they pulled me in. It was just beautiful. Um, so we did that, and uh, we launched it at Pity. Um, the vibe was very good. Response was brilliant from the Japanese um, journalists around, um, and it got voted the best product in Japan that year by Time Magazine. And then it's just practically moved on to different museums, 
um, has been acquired by the Victorian Harbour um, as part of their, their uh, Kyoto uh, Kimono vast, massive exhibition. It's moved on to Quai in, in Paris, the museum as well. So somehow it's got its it's got a world on its own, and it just grows in, in, in a very, very fascinating kind of way without actually pushing anymore. It just keeps going, you know? Um, and that's an amazing story, isn't it? It's been brilliant, because uh, I think for me the most important thing about this work and what I'm most proud of is the fact that it's become sort of the, the bridge, uh, the Tiki Mona has been the bridge between, uh, or, or the bridge to um, the traditional kimonos. So the customers that will find the tea kimono would, after buying the tea kimono, order a traditional kimono as well. It, it's sort of um, the, 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 the soft way to get into the traditional kimono, so to speak. I mean, there, there's something about the Japanese that I keep saying. It's, it's fascinating when, I think it's the same with most places you go to, because when you go in third, you meet, you meet the culture. And then the more you ask about, the more questions you have, the more the people sort of move to the forefront and the culture sort of moves to the back. Do you get what I mean? Because the people are the same everywhere. What you meet first is, is practically the fact that you don't understand the cultures yet. But the more questions you ask, the more you get to understand how things are and the more you get to meet the people behind. And they are the same people that you have everywhere. Only they have this dedication that I find very amazing. You don't get it anywhere. They're very intentional about the things they do and, and they will not stop until they get it right. And even then, they just keep hacking on, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, of all the places, I've lived in quite a few places around the world and um, Japan is still my, you know, my favourite place in, you know, in the world to, to visit and spend time. And also you're talking about perfecting things. I spoke to a, a, a swordsmith and I said to him, you know, what's the perfect knife? And he said, I don't know, I've not made it yet. He hasn't made it yet, exactly. That's, that's exactly the answer they'll give you because, I mean, no one is perfect. You just have to keep doing it because there's always a better way to do what you've already started, you know? I mean, I, I can see your attraction, you know, to, to Japan and why you love it so much. I want to get a sense of um, understanding from you how you interpret mm. luxury in the things that you make. So your, the textiles, the cut, the fit. I suppose, you know, for, for, for T. Michael, it's practically everything I make are the things that I want to have for myself. So that's, that's the starting point. Um, what do I need in the shirt? Um, what do I require a jacket to? How would I, how should it function for me? So, and I tend to, I tend to say that my, my, the way I dress is almost like a uniform per se. I don't, I don't dress up. I don't dress down. You know, it's, it's just, I wear what I have because I've, I've made them specially for me. And that comes the luxury because I will choose the best cloth for the right garment, um, performance wise, um, texture, um, the, the, the look of it. And then when I find that, I would find a way to transform that into something better than just a cloth on its own. Um, that's when the function will come in. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of um, the ornamental part of it as well, because it's very important that what you wear should also look good. And it should be done in a sedated way, but you should be remembered for the cuts and the drape, not necessarily for the loudness of the cloth. Um, so when I put all that together, I find that I feel very comfortable every time I put it on. I don't have to choose what I wear every morning. Just, I don't have to think about it. I can reach out for anything that's in my wardrobe and then it will take me through the day because that's my uniform. And for me, all that put together in one, it's luxury. It's, it's having an opportunity of choosing very few items that will work for you, well, practically all year round. Um, because the cloth will last a longer time. I will have it for a longer period of time. The cloth will breathe well. The cut is, it's, um, gives you that ease in your everyday performance. Um, and yeah, in, in the simplest form, that, that for me is luxury. You know, it, it's, the cloth should be made in the most expensive cloth. 
but it should be made in a good enough cloth that is will last you. And those cloths are usually not cheap, but you have to pay for it because you want something that will last you a longer time. I love that you said um, you don't dress up and you don't dress down because you've you know you've got good quality clothes that stand the test of time and the occasion. Yeah, it's 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 is me at every given point. If you see me on a Friday afternoon, it'll be the same if you met me on a Tuesday morning. It's it's just the same. Um, a different outfit probably, but it's it's all based on the same um, kind of approach, uh, and that's what I like about. Um, I suppose that's what I like about what I do, and that's why I do it. Has your style changed over the years? So since you opened in your, um, since you opened your, 1996. Yes, it has. Yes, he has. And, and you know, I, I tell people, never say never. You know, if someone says to you, will you wear leather pants, leather trousers? I wouldn't say never. I would just say, well, not today, probably. Uh, because at some point you might, or at some point you wouldn't. But, but there's nothing um, one should be adamant about not wearing anything because your, your, your reflections will change, your mind will change, your, your outlook in life will change. So I think I've, I've developed my style over the years as well. And most people probably wouldn't notice it because they see bits over the years. Uh, but the people that are really close to me can tell. Oh, there's a luxury in that, isn't there? Well, there you go. It's, 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 it is. And, and you know, at, at certain points in, 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 this, in this phase, I was just wearing suits every day. When I'm talking about suits, I'm like a shirt, a tie. I'm not tie, I don't wear tie. Pocket squares. Uh, and over a shirt. Uh, these days... I still wear the jacket, but it's softer. The trying to be maybe slightly um, oversized, but it still has the same. Um, it it gives me that uniform that I need to perform in my everyday life. And again, that's a luxury in that. Yeah. Do you consider yourself as a, being a craftsman? Yes. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, more so than a designer, you know, because I, in, in a way, I try to. I try to put out things that will last longer, not just for the season. Um, and I'm not dictated about what's supposed to be the flavor of the month or what's supposed to be trendy. Uh, so I'm more about the, the, the crafts and also the reflection of my mind. So those two things put together, something made well. Um, and if I'm in the right state of mind, then I'll be able to put out the perfect cloth for that. And that will last long. Um, and that would, would, would stand a test of time. So, yeah, I'd rather have that description than, than a designer. But it's very difficult to say I'm a craftsperson um, and people are like, what do you make? You know. So design is easier because it's easy for them to understand exactly what you do. Yeah. But craftsman is more important or craftsperson is more important because it, you know, um, I mean, dare I say, anybody can be a designer, maybe not a good designer, but not everybody can be a craftsperson. It takes takes a certain dedication and it takes years to, to, to understand how these things are put together, you know? Yeah. And skill. Yes, and skill, absolutely. Because you can be as intentional as you want. Without a skill, you'll never get it right. So, and, and hence my appreciation for, for Japan as well, because the more craftspeople you meet, in these small remote areas and you sit down having conversations with them, you realize that it's, it's, never, it's never about um, creating a new product. It's about perfecting what you already started. And then, but obviously you need to sell products in between. So you sell one thing, you go back to the drawing board, you try and perfect what you just put out and then it goes on and on forever. So. It's more about crafting than, than just designing and, and, and selling. And in Japan, they've got the term for that is a takumi, isn't it? Yes, they do have. And, and again, it's about people that are dedicated to a certain uh, um, um, field. And it could be anything from, from um, a noodle maker to, 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 uh, um, to a salt uh, maker to to pharmacist uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Shokunina. I think it's shokunin. shokunin. Do you think that do you think luxury is exemplified by a tangible object, or do you think luxury can be created without having you know the physical artifact? I mean, just going on what we were talking about craftsmanship and skill. Yeah. I think when you know, if you go back in time and you look at the the 
the brands or the design houses that people call luxury today, uh, like Hermes or Louis Vuitton, they started out creating product for their clientele. They wanted something that could work in their everyday life, you know, the travel, so they wanted a suitcase. They did that, so they wanted that. And, and then obviously that's where it started from because that was a def that is the definition of luxury. Over the years, they've, they've introduced more products, they've put more glitter on it and so on and so forth because that probably sells to a certain uh, group of people. But they still have that craft approach. Um, and I suppose that's what makes them a luxury product, not just because it's expensive, but because they put their heart and soul in those products. They are the products that they do that are not really worth talking about, but that's not my field. So I just leave that. I leave it at that. That's um, very diplomatic of you. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, but at the same time, you do have do have people living in countries like Ghana, some in West Africa, that they will always go to a tailor to get their clothes made, because and again, it's not about luxury, but it's about that's how you get your clothes. Um, but then, if you sit back and you analyze it, they have the luxury approach, even though it's fueled by necessity, so to speak. But that is that's the luxury piece. You get a piece that's made for you, you know. Um, so it's all about the crafts, the craftsman, and the, the recipient of, of this craft. Um, and and that's the triangle. That's a beautiful triangle there. That there was. Um, there's a film um, by Wim Wenders. Yeah. And there's a part with, uh, where Yoji Ramoto was talking about clothes and inspiration from his mom, who used to make clothes and so on and so forth. And I remember he was talking about when you walk into, you're invited to a party, and you walk into the house, you get into the, 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 the entrance, you get into the corridor, the entrance, and there's, there's all this coats hanging there. And then just by taking a look, you know who was in the house because usually people used to have just one coat. Right. Um, and and there's, there's something beautiful about that, um, I think. And and again, you know, it does, you have the same relationship between yourself and your garment, and that garment, garment tells a lot of, tells other people a bit about you, and it's all connected somehow. I, I suppose there's, there's, there's a certain luxury element in that. Are you influenced at all by um, Ghanaian fashion and Ghanaian textiles, and do you use any of do you use any um, of that in in any of your work? I'm very very much inspired by and, and motivated inspired and motivated by by Ghanaian culture, um, and I think I've had these discussions before with with um, Ghanaians and artists from Ghana and, and, and tailors and designers. But for me, you know, the the thing about um, Ghanaian culture, just like anywhere else, is not about is not in a specific thing. You know, I think it it's it's the whole approach to life itself and and the references that we have. So, um, a Japanese person doesn't have to wear kimono for you to understand that he's into Japanese, da -da -da, so on and so forth. So, I don't I don't do that. But what I do is I delve into the the, the traditions, the cloth, um, and I interpret them interpret them my way i i so i do have this piece in my collection which is called the batwing and every time i wear the batwing people go oh that's that's very japanese obviously i i just let it be it's fine you know but the point is it's a deconstructed deconstructed batakari and batakari is like this gown that we wear in ghana and it's flared at the skirts and it's, it's mostly from the northern part of, 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 of Ghana. But when you deconstruct it and you take the colors out and you make it in black, just simple black or gray cloth, the references get to, um, people find it very difficult to pinpoint it and it becomes Japanese right away. And I think that's what I think, that's what I like about, that's what I like about the way I work because you can draw influences from many different places and people would never be able to tell if you change the colors and the cloth because that's all our, that's what we have really we're not really looking at things we just sort of assume we know things you know 
Mm. Now, that's interesting. And that's what I was going to say is that because kente cloth is typically quite brightly colored, but if you muted Correct. it and it was all done in black, but the texture was still there and the pattern was still there, that's an amazing thing. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of designers that have, have, have delved into that, and I, I really applaud them for doing that. But a beautiful thing about the Kente cloth is not just the cloth itself, it's the history behind the cloth and the weaving techniques. So in a way, to be able to, to, to take uh, Ghanaian culture into the future, we need to go back to the source itself and hack into that. Yeah, That's the beauty, you know? Yeah, and there's your luxury argument. You know, there's the luxury debate there coming you go. full circle, isn't it? You know, it's That's about it. history and heritage, and you know That's how correct. you know all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's That's fascinating. And, um, and again, every, every time you know, I, I there's so many people doing different things, and they always have this uh, a, a little bit of this, a whiff of that, and then you put it together, and it changes the whole the whole climate or the whole uh, presentation or whatever. Um, or what people perceive that to be. And um, that's the magic. Without being able to hack into situations and, and traditions, then we'll be just regurgitating things that we've seen before. And, and I suppose that gets boring after a while. So we need to be able to hack into things that we probably think is already done, but a different uh, look, a different um, break them apart. And before you know, you've got something magical. Earlier, you you spoke about being when you started Norwegian Rain, being conscious about um, the environment and sustainable yeah. fabrics. Mm. And um, how is that kind of how has how has that manifested itself in the work that you've continued to do with both your uh, with the T Michael and with um, Norwegian Rain? It, it's very present um, with, with T Michael. It's, it's present in the, in the fact that it's a small collection. Um, they are produced by hand uh, in the factory in Portugal. Um, and when I say by hand, it's, it's cut by hand, put together by hand, and, and it's, it's not a big collection. So in a way, that's the best way to maintain sustainability. You know, uh, With Norwegian Rain, we also have adapted many different techniques. At the moment, we're on the verge of, of something new. Um, you know, when COVID kicked in, we just realized that we're very... Um, vulnerable to the way business was was, was um, done. Uh, our, our, all our four stores shut down in the same week. And then there you are with, with no income coming in, you know. So you've got to rethink everything. And I think what we did what we did was just practically tear apart every part of our company and re-question everything we did. Why do we open stores from 10 to 6 in the evening? Why do we sell this kind of garment why do we xyz why do we have stores this size why do we you know so in that process we just realized that there's so many different ways of doing business um, and we didn't have to fill up a store with with lots of clothing to be able to sell you know because at that point people are home so the only way we could get back onto the market was to find someone to 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 enhance our online presence um, we did that and then we increase our sales online, and that's beautifully effective because people go online, they they look at the pictures, they create this mood for themselves, and then boom, they buy their product, you know. Um, and when people come to your store, that's another story too because they get to meet the staff, they get to see the space, they have these beautiful conversations, and together the effectiveness of their online uh, shopping. And the, the, the savviness of, of the brick and mortar store is something that we want to put together. And when you get it right, uh, what you do is you can also reduce uh, production. And what we did as well is if we implement the ideas that we had, then, because you know, a third of every garment sold never gets to the customer. It it's all ends up in dumps everywhere. So... We have a different way of working for our retailers now, which we hope to implement by August this year, uh, where they wouldn't have to buy anything from us. They will maintain their 2.7 markup still. They will have the sample garments in the store, the sizes. We will have a centralized uh, warehouse, and we will get these garments to them when the customer orders it. And if the customer wants a special color, we make it on demand. So it's a bespoke kind of service in a way. So this way, they wouldn't have surplus um, stock. 
we wouldn't have either because we would produce the pieces that we know we can sell and then the customer would choose what they want. So this is the way forward. This is sustainable and we cut down on, on um, overproduction. Yeah, and that, I mean, that in a way personifies a luxury experience because there's so many layers to that. You're not wasting cloth. You're not distributing unnecessarily. There's not stuff going into landfill. Um, there's a different customer experience that's enhanced, you know, I think through that, through the shopping experience. We've been testing this out for the last about maybe two and a half years, and we, we know this is going to work. There'll be a few uh, tweaks as we move along, but, but eventually after a year and a half, I think we'll find the perfect balance of getting this to work. Yeah, I mean, that sounds very exciting. Um, Absolutely. And then, and what role does technology play in, in all of that in terms of, you know, the sourcing, the manufacturing, getting, you know, making sure everything's made? everything. Practically everything, because based on all, all, all this information that we get from from uh, from companies that um, put out this information, we can we can make decisions based on um, on facts, um, and we can make decisions based on what we experience in our stores as well. So, based on that as well, we can have a, a nice little um, um, platform or portal in our phones. You just scan the garment, tells you everything you need to know, gives you lots of pictures, gives you background story, two steps, click, you buy the product. So it's very technical, um, but we want you to also have that brick and mortar experience so you can try it on, through the cloth, um, check the buttons, and then it completes the whole package. So it's, it's, it's practically digital and it's, uh, and it's, it's uh, analog at the same time. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a very different shopping experience for the, the customer. I remember when you had your pop-up shop in London. Oh, that's quite a few years ago yes. now. Even that experience was quite different. Yes, it was. Because you weren't bombarded with huge numbers of, you know, you weren't bombarded with huge um, amounts of clothing. I re even remember that from then. That's correct. I think, I think in a way, we, we've figured out that the way we like to do business is is reflective of the people we are. And and I would really like to walk into a store where you actually don't get to see the products properly because it's too much in that store. In our spaces, we like to to, to give you the, the, the opportunity to just walk around. We're not going to disturb you. We let you know we know you're here. Um, take time, feel the cloth, um, see the pieces, try them on. And, and in a way, we appeal to that... Um, that creative side of, of, of people as well. You know, we all, we all know people want a garment that will work. They want to look good, but at the same time, you need to appeal to that other part of, of their brain where they, they are trying to tell themselves, this is a good thing to do. Uh, I can't do this because this is what I stand for. So it, it's it's a beautiful test. We keep trying this every time, and, and we're always looking for that perfect balance of, of having a fashion business because that's what it is. Oh, interesting that you talk about it as being a fashion business. So do you change, I mean, every season, are you producing new stuff or do you have, um, you know, these um, staple items that people can buy year in, year out? Yes, we do. Uh, we do have staples. That the, the beautiful part of this job is we can enhance these staples. Uh, we can make better versions and it keeps going on. But obviously, it's always nice to have... Um, um, a new style coming in, not just for the customer's point of view, but also for, for our creative point of view. We need to to challenge ourselves and see what we can come up with. Um, that could be uh, a potential or future staple as well. So the collection grows beautifully without being, um, you know, we don't need to drop things just because it's spring, summer 2023, you know. Yeah, sure. What inspires you? I think it's everything, really. Everything except clothing. Okay, that you know, everything except everything except clothing, because I I I don't really go into stores to look at clothing. I'd rather go to the art gallery, uh, the museum, um, look at buildings, because I I want to stay away from looking at what other people are doing, but I want to be inspired somehow. So I would distill all that information from from architecture, from art, uh, into sculptors, and and distill that into uh, my own vernacular, design vernacular, and create something from there. That should be the way of life, shouldn't it, really? Yeah, but it's it's not really 
is is not what everyone does and i i understand why people do otherwise but we have the luxury again of doing what we can do because in a way we are content with the small gains that we get um, as long as we can create jobs for other people and we can have this beautiful life i'm interested to know what you think about um kind of the virtual um virtual environments where you can you know in Fortnite, for example you can go and you can dress up your avatar and you can go to a store and you can buy a virtual or digital um outfit um what are your views on that within you know within the confines of a luxury a virtual luxury um, mm. shopping environment we actually just talked about it today um because I, I i do like the concept of 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 merging analog and dig digital so in a way i i see that and i understand it but for me i'm just trying to look for a way to to hack into that and take a little bit of that so my customers can feel the cloth even though they're not in my store that's all there is to it if we can manage to get them to feel the, the, the fabric and get them to to, to try it on, not in that avatar sort of way, but to physically feel the weight of it, that would be beautiful. Because then you've got the best of both, both worlds, both, really. You know, the Norwegian rent and the tailoring. I mean, mm. the tactility is very important, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. I mean, you walk in there, and then you can feel the cloth, and you can feel, and then it tells you something, and then you move along. And then there's a sensation that you get by doing that. And that sensation sits with you for a long time, you know? Uh, and, and then intuitively you would know this is for me, this is not, this is for me, this is not. So if yeah. we can manage to, 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 to sort of capture that, um, that digital um, world and, and put it into our little sort of analog world, that would be a perfect combination. So if there's yeah. anyone out there who knows how to do this, <laughs> let us know. We've spoken about luxury and craftsmanship and how do you perceive luxury? I suppose it's it's like you, you know, I, I, get, I get to travel to different places and get to meet wonderful people. And the fact that you get to a space you've never been to before, you've never been before, and someone will say, hey, I know this wonderful place that I think you're going to like. Let's go and have a drink, a meal, see some art, or whatever it is. And, and then you get transported to the space, and then... It's just exactly as described, you are going to love it. And then you sit there and you soak it all in. Um, and then you, you fly back to, to your base and then you reflect on that and you realize how lucky and, um, and how grateful you are to have people that can do that for you. Um, obviously, when people come your way, you tend to do the same thing because it's got to be reciprocal, right? That for me, it's is luxury because you can't just get that at the snap of the finger. It comes because you build a certain relationship with people and that, that has a magical value. I mean, I know you're very much an innovator. Mm -hmm. How does that um, ideology work with being an innovator and being so interested in, you know, in you know, different cutting techniques, different types of fabrics, different outlooks on how you might dress somebody or mm. yourself? It goes, it goes really hand in hand because, you know, I'm seeking that experience that you cannot, um, you cannot quantify or you cannot, um, it's very difficult to, to explain that experience in a way. So everything that I'll do, I'll try to, to infuse that feeling into my uh, creative process as well. And, and I'm hoping the end product will be something that will be totally different from what you know from before. But I will still give you that reference because you need to understand, you need to, people need to know it's a jacket, it's got two buttons on it, you know, I understand how it works, it's got sleeves, I can put my hand through it. But at the same time, in that small confinement of space, you need to innovate it so that experience will be maximized. And that is, is, is the drive to innovate and, and create new, new experiences for people and myself. Tell me about the two... Um, I don't know if they're buttons, but they're brooches that you wear and they often feature in your work on a lapel. What are they? They are leather buttons. Um, and I remember 
I, I mentioned earlier on I was using pocket squares back in the day and I just realized that I don't want to have a pocket square in there. I don't really see the point of it. I don't really use the handkerchief, you know, so let it go. But I needed something to ornate myself with. And, and I, I remember I got this button made in, in, in a cloth from a friend and I put it on. I realized that that's actually very nice because there's a small little detail there. Um, and then I moved on to using leather because leather has this luxury feel to it, you know. Uh, and then I started with a one and I doubled it up. And that created a whole different kind of experience because people are like, what's that double thing you've got there? What's that? What does that mean? And, and there's so many questions. And at a point, I wanted to tell people or give people a different explanation every time. Uh, like, oh, it stands for that. Something like that. But, but it got a little bit um, tedious to come up with new, new explanations. So I just kept it. It's, it's nothing. It's just really um, something ornate is, is how I, 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 um, I pimp myself up, so to speak. <laughs> Right. Okay. Okay. So I, I, I'm pleased I'm not the only person who's asked the question. Uh, it's a good one. It's, uh, but yeah, I ran of ideas. So okay. I was hoping I will come up with a new explanation every day, but it's not that easy. Okay. Pimping yourself up with it is great. <laughs> That's good. Let's go for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, right. I want to ask you that the question I ask everybody is what is your luxury? I think I think I know what it is in a way because you know I've 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 come to a certain stage, um, both in life and business and everything else that I dictate how my day will work. I dictate exactly the content of the day. Obviously, there's certain things I wouldn't have control over, but but I know I get up and I go to work and I'm going to experience all these beautiful things. But then since my space is open, all these magical things will happen in the course of the day. So even though I have control over it, there's all this um, impromptu serendipity and everything else that comes out with it. And at the end of every day, I feel grateful. And it's not because everything that happens is magical. It's just the fact that everything that happens is totally different from the day before. So something goes wrong. Trust me, from my experience, is the opener to something beautiful. So it's like, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just practically what's happening, and we need to find out where we're going to go from there. That kind of attitude, that um, having that perception, being able to have that um, state of mind, for me, is very, very, very luxurious. T. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you very much. Brilliant being here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, T. Michael. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our partners, Intellect Books. And don't forget, you can catch up on all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favorite listening channel.